This is Healthcare Strategies. Hello, and welcome to Healthcare Strategies. My name is Kelsey Waddell, and I'm the editor of Healthcare Intelligence and Multimedia Manager for Extelligent Healthcare Media. Healthcare stakeholders rely on data in order to achieve the triple aims of value-based care. Data informs patient identification, risk stratification, predictive analytics, and population health strategy development. And each of these elements is critical for a value-based care agenda. Emily Sokol, Director of Research at Extelligent Healthcare Media, is joining us to discuss the impact of data analytics on population health and value-based care, and how the recent Population Health Insights Report from Extelligent Healthcare Media sheds light on this particular subject. Emily, it's so good to have you on today. It's great being here, Kelsey. So to start us off, we always just like to have the context for what you all were looking at and who you were talking to. So who are you surveying and how did you gather this data? Yeah. So for people who've listened to the podcast before, I'm going to sound like a broken record, but for those who are new to hearing about our reports, we have a huge audience at Extelligent Healthcare Media of healthcare stakeholders. And we survey those audiences through email. So on any web enabled device, they can answer our surveys. And for this survey in particular, like Kelsey said, we were interested in focusing on population health and data analytics and how that informs value-based care and thinking about value-based care strategies. So we looked at those who were identified as holding director level or higher positions at various provider organizations in our database. And the reason we targeted the director plus category is that those were really the individuals that we identified to be the decision makers. They were the ones who were hopefully going to have the best knowledge about their organization's population health strategy and be the ones sitting at the table when their organization might be deciding which vendor to use or which risk stratification methodology to use and and things like that. So in total, we had 150 qualified individuals who answered our survey from organizations like federally qualified health centers, hospitals, primary care, physician practices, and specialists. And then one of my favorite parts that we do in our research is we also follow up with these individuals and we'll talk with those who want to further about their strategies and dive a little bit further into sort of the boots on the ground work that they're doing. So we talked to four individuals in qualitative follow-up and there are some cool quotes I'll pull out later in some of my responses. And then sort of the last thing to set the scene is we really like in a lot of our work at Extelligent to look at the difference between hospitals and health systems and physician or provider practices. And those are your primary care physician offices, behavioral health, federally qualified and community health centers, those typically smaller organizations, because I think that that can draw a really cool comparison between how resource allocation and particularly, you know, budget finances, technology availability and patient population reach can impact some of the the topics that we're diving into. So you'll notice at some points too, that I'll kind of dive into when we compare those two groups and and that's why. Great. For the providers that we interviewed, um, I think it's also great for setting the stage and you address this obviously in the report that different providers are at different stages of population health data development. And so I was curious for the people that we interviewed, where were they at? What were they encountering in that process? Yeah, so we saw a really wide range of where organizations were in their sort of population health growth and development. Most of the respondents identified themselves to be in the earlier developmental stages of population health strategy. It was about 22% of our survey respondents. And then 21% that said that they were expanding their strategies. After that, you get into individuals who are working to optimize 
And then you had a handful who said that we don't have any population health strategies at all. But I think where the really interesting difference is here is when we compare those two groups that I was, that I was talking about earlier. So your hospitals and then your provider organizations. And we saw that compared to hospitals, 19% more physician practices report that they're in the planning phase of population health strategies. So that's only 26% of hospitals were in this category, but 45% of physician practices were. So huge, huge discrepancy there showing really that these physician practices are very firmly in the sort of early phase, whereas hospitals are moving a little bit more into those, you know, expanding and optimizing phases of, of population health. The physician practices were also 11% less likely to say that they had a strategy that was sustainable and in place. And they were 19% less likely to say that they were scaling up their strategies. So again, just reiterating sort of this recurring trend that we're seeing when we compare these physician practices to hospitals that the hospitals and the health systems are, are moving pretty quickly and are you know more robustly on the expanding, optimizing end of the spectrum, whereas the physician practices are really struggling to get started and lift these programs sort of off the ground. We've seen this on really all of the work that we've done in value-based care and privacy and security, telehealth, it sort of runs the gamut. And I think really shows how resource allocation and technology finances workforce can really help an organization speed up some of these practices that we all know are useful and helpful, but these smaller provider practices don't necessarily have those resources. So they're struggling a little bit more to get their start. Mm. Yeah, that totally makes sense. And in some sense that falls along what we would intuitively perhaps expect that a hospital system with, as you said, more resources, more staff would be farther ahead on these kind of areas would have more bandwidth to address those things for both populations. Were there other challenges that providers were facing when they were trying to develop these population health strategies that really stuck out to you? Yeah. So I want to give sort of a quick caveat that I'm not necessarily making the argument that provider practices can't get there, but it's more of you think about a hospital is way more likely to have a director of population health and data analysis than a small physician practice. And a smaller physician practice, the director of population health and data analysis is probably doing five other jobs. So you have more of that dedicated resource. If that's all you're devoting your time to, you're able to grow that way more. But to answer your question, you know, when we think about sort of population health strategies, there's, there's a couple of steps in this is speaking really broadly, but you have to, you have to gather data on your patient population. You have to generate some sort of risk score or grouping categorization. You have to do something with that data. Then you have to use that information that you gathered and those buckets that you've put your patients into, and you have to attach the right resources to each of those buckets that you put your patients in. So we saw that more than half of our respondents said generating actionable data was one of the biggest challenges in their population health strategies. So they were struggling right from the start. Don't even know what data to get or what data is going to be the right data to use in order to make those informed decisions that ultimately can be linked to resources and hopefully better patient outcomes. And there was a pretty interesting agreement between hospitals and physician practices on this one. We found that finding qualified staff was also a challenge for 47% of hospitals and 41% of physician practices. So we, we talk a lot and I love to talk about the difference between hospitals and physician practices, but it was really interesting to see that even though hospitals are further in sort of their thinking and their advancement in these population health strategies, they still have a lot of the same challenges that these smaller provider organizations have as well. 
gathering the right data, patient activation, and understanding which stratification methodology to use were also identified as challenges for both of these organizations. And I think this is really suggesting, at least my take on this, is it's really suggesting that the end-to-end process is, is a challenge, that it's not just this one section of a population health strategy that's challenging. It's everything from what data do I get to how do I ultimately use the information that I have to connect with a patient and get the patient the right resources. One of the most interesting, though, I think discrepancies that we saw in our hospital and provider practice comparison was when we talked about the challenges to finding a trusted community partner. So we've seen this a lot in social determinants of health strategies, as well as some population health strategies that after a patient's identified to be at risk, some organizations will partner with community partners because they may not have the resources internally, or there might be a partner who's better equipped to handle it. So one of the simplest examples that I can think of is a patient who is identified to struggle with food insecurity can have huge impacts on their overall health. So it might be something that's identified. This patient is at high risk for experiencing food insecurity. A physician practice may not know how to tackle that, but they can partner with a local community center or food bank or one of the resources in the community to tie that patient to care. But where we're seeing the struggle is only 9% of hospitals say that they're having trouble identifying these partners, but 55% of physician practices are struggling to find these partners. So I think that's really speaking to potentially one of the reasons that physician practices might be struggling to optimize these strategies is because they ultimately want to help their patients. But if you don't know how or who to connect your patients to, it's going to be really hard to make this data actionable in a way that's actually going to impact patient care. You listed out core ways in which data is critical for population health. Predictive analytics obviously being one of the major factors in this, trying to figure out in advance what patients are going to go through in order to better and more quickly address it in the moment. And I was curious, I know that the report kind of addressed that there is some change happening in the way that providers are looking at predictive analytics and handling it. Could you talk us through what changes are happening in that space? Yeah. So one of the most interesting takeaways from this report for me was the fact that provider organizations, hospital health system, whomever it might be, we're really looking for more nuanced analytics. Our overall provider organizations felt really confident in the types of analysis that they've been doing forever. And the best example of this is gap closure. Provider organizations across the board felt really confident that we can identify a gap in care and we can close that care gap. I'd be curious a little bit how the pandemic might've changed those numbers and how telehealth and things like that come into play with this. But for the most part, providers for a very long time have said, Hey, you haven't had this screening. We need to get you in for that screening. Or, Hey, we see we're missing this on your chart let's run this test so that we can have that information. And that's stuff that's like old hat to providers at this point. And I really liked this quote from one of the individuals we talked to in qualitative follow-up. He said, the gap closure stuff is bread and butter the basic blocking and tackling by today's standards. The more complicated view is looking at total cost of care, risk changes, and things of that nature. And I really liked this because the whole reason that we dove into this report was to look at how data analytics and population health measures play into value-based care. And as we've seen through a lot of our reporting, a lot of our research work, the transition to value-based care is very, very slow. And I think moving further towards more value-based care is really going to come from that confidence that physician practices have in predictive analytics. We didn't explicitly ask how confident are you in your predictive analytics strategies, but if I had to guess based on those who said they were performing predictive analytics, they're not super confident because not a lot of people are doing it. So the further 
confidence in that grows, the more confident providers can be to get into more risk-based value-based care arrangements. Cause I mean, if you think about it and I don't blame providers for this at all, you don't want to get into something if you don't know what you're getting yourself into. Like you don't want to get into a value-based care contract if you don't understand how to predict risk or if you don't have the technology to do risk or you don't have the, the analytic staff on board to feel really confident in your ability to understand your patient risk population and then actually deliver on reducing your patient risk. So when we're talking about value-based care and population health, one of the major questions that we run into is how is reimbursement going to work? And there's a lot of different answers to that, but what kinds of payment models did you see providers gravitating towards in order to cover their population health strategies? And how does population health reimbursement fit into a provider's transition into value-based care overall? I know you kind of touched on that, but I'd love to hear more about that since it's such a pivotal part of this. Yeah. So I, I think right around the time that I came on board with Excelligent, saw a diagram and I'm not going to be able to say my source on this. So I feel really bad off the top of my head, but where we thought about payment reform, like a, like a spectrum where at one end of the spectrum, you have fee for service. And on the other end, you have fully capitated payment models. And the idea is that you can gradually move from one end of the spectrum to the other. And as you do, you're taking on more risk. And I mentioned that because I think population health and the sophistication of data analytics follows a similar pattern in going back to our conversation about gap closure, something that's on sort of the low risk end of the spectrum, you can tie gap closure metrics to pay for performance reimbursement models really, really easily. And providers feel pretty confident in that. But if you want to get into more predictive analytics and cost-related analysis, that's where you start to move further on the risk end of the spectrum. And that's, I think, sort of why we're seeing a slower move in that direction. But we are seeing some of these population health measures tied to reimbursement. Our survey data indicated that 42% of respondents have reimbursement models that are connected to population health, but that was mostly in the pay for performance reimbursement models that were tied to gap closure. So it's like paralleling almost perfectly what we're seeing on our value-based care work in general is that we're very much still on this like low risk end of the spectrum. So in order for providers to move into that more, you know, risk-based end of the, the reimbursement spectrum, they're going to need some of these more nuanced analytic capabilities, like looking at predictive analytics, or really, I think cost-related is going to be the really big one, especially if, you know, things like capitated payment models are going to be tied to reducing overall spend. You need the confidence in understanding your baseline costs and predicting costs in the future. If you're going to feel confident getting into any of those, those reimbursement models. Mm. Yeah. You know, we always like to go into these things without a whole lot of expectations going in. What was your, and I always like to ask, was there anything in the report that surprised you, any results that surprised you or responses from the individuals you spoke to that kind of caught you off guard and and was not something that the way that you would have expected that to go? Yeah, I was really surprised. And I think this is partially because I'm a bit of a data nerd. So I just like, there's so much data that's available and out there. I was shocked at how challenging provider organizations are saying it is to tie data to outcomes and how difficult of a time they're having in connecting these two. And I, I think data and interoperability of data, especially when you're coming from multiple systems, potentially multiple payers can be a challenge. But I think the real big takeaway that kind of surprised me is there's this really big call 
for not just better data, but for better technologies and software and training, that's going to help people actually use the data that's out there. Again, being the data nerd, I know, I know that the information is there. The challenge is really, how do we make it actionable? How do we analyze it effectively? How do we communicate those results to providers? And then how do we empower providers to use that data to ultimately impact patient care and, and improve patient outcomes? Yeah, that is surprising. And hopefully an area that we can definitely work on because that's going to be pretty key, I think, moving into the future of healthcare. Yep. Oh, absolutely. Before we get off, Emily, what's next for Insights? You guys are always working on some great stuff. So what can we expect to hear from y'all in the future? Yes, we have a couple of cool projects in the works right now. One is a survey where we're looking at the impact of regulatory guidelines on payers. So we asked our payer audience about some of the specific challenges that they're experiencing to implementing some of the really big acts right now, like surprise billing and price transparency. And then we will be doing our bread and butter value-based care assessment. This will be our third value-based care assessment where we monitor trends in value-based care over time. And we're slowly seeing that incremental shift on, on the spectrum to the more advanced risk models. I'm hoping that in this year's report, we continue to see that transition, but it'll be really cool to dive into those as well. Right. Well, Emily, thank you so much as always for coming on and for all of your work in this report and our past research insights. We always enjoy hearing what's going on in that department. Thanks for having me, Kels. I love being on. Listeners, we'd love to hear your thoughts about this episode. Feel free to reach out to me at kwadil at extelligentmedia.com. That's k-w-a-d-d-i-l-l at extelligentmedia.com to share your thoughts. You can also use that email to let us know if there are any health industry related questions or stories you would like us to consider covering. And if you liked this episode and it sparked some thoughts for you, please head over to Apple and give us a few stars and a positive review. Thank you for listening. This has been an Extelligent Healthcare Media production.